Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And you can follow along as I read it aloud. This is Jesus speaking here. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, before we start, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we thank you just for this time where we can come and uh, hear from your word. And uh, the one thing it tells us is that, God, you are a God who speaks. Uh, so, God, speak to us through your word. Uh, may your spirit speak to us all individually and personally and help us to see the things that you uh, want us to see. And as we sit under the preaching of your word, also, we pray that your uh, your spirit would constantly be working to uh, mold and shape and transform our hearts and change the desires of our hearts as we hear it, uh, as we remember how good you are, uh, that we would seek to respond to you in uh, even deeper and greater adoration and worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we are in the middle of a series, and we're doing a series on prayer. We're trying to become a more prayerful church, and what we've been doing and covering is some of the prayers in the Bible and last week, what we did is we started looking at what I would say is probably the most famous prayer in the Christian church, which is the Lord's Prayer. And this is a prayer that Jesus here is teaching to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, last week, what we tried to do is we basically tried to look at this prayer from a wide-angle lens and kind of look at the structure and things like that. And uh, we said the focus of this prayer is on the kingdom and the direction in which this prayer moves is from God to us. It's first concerned with the honor of God, with the will of God, with the kingdom of God. And when we understand that, then all other petitions are placed in their proper place. Now, originally what I was going to do today, and you know, we do uh, print the future sermon, the sermon schedule uh, for future weeks, and you notice this is part two today. Uh, what I was going to do today is I was going to try to cover the last four petitions, but as I was writing it, I was like, uh, there's just not enough time to, uh, to go into it enough. So I think there's going to be a part three next week. And today what I'm going to do is cover two specific petitions, which is give us this day our daily bread and the second one about forgiving us our debts, those two petitions. And because there is so much to say, I'm going to forego uh, an introduction and let's just dive in. Let's just dive in. So verse 11, it says this, Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, it is November now, and I think because it's November, because Black Friday is approaching us, I think you start to see a lot of advertisements coming out, maybe a lot of junk emails in your uh, email box, in your inbox. Uh, soon after that, you're going to see even more advertisements because it'll be the holiday season, the Christmas season. And this season, of course, is very important for the retail business because this is when these kind of businesses make uh, most of their money for the year. 
Uh, I'm sure many of you will go out and you will buy certain things. You will look at certain sales uh, and you will uh, buy gifts for others maybe. Uh, I started to actually think about why uh, people enjoy uh, purchasing things in general. Uh, you know, I know sometimes there are stuff that we need, but I th also think a lot of times uh, we buy a lot of stuff that we don't need. Uh, sometimes we get so many things that we don't even realize that we ordered it and we get it in the mail and it's like, oh yeah, I forgot I ordered this. And, you know, if I were to theo theologize why, uh, just people in general, why we might enjoy the, the act of purchasing and buying things, I do think that maybe it does give us uh, a little sense of power. You know, we can make a decision, we can click a button, uh, we can enter in a few numbers, and boom, one or two laters, days later, it just comes to our door. And I think it feels good to buy things for ourselves, right? But you know, there's a flip side to that in that some people in this world do not have the financial means to just do that. Uh, some people might here may not have the financial means to just kind of look at something and boom, buy it and experience that sense of uh, self-dependence or maybe that sense of power that you might get. Uh, you could be a student, you could be somebody who's unemployed, you might be somebody who has a lot of debt, you might be somebody who had a medical emergency and that has depleted your finances. There's people in this world uh, who, don't, who are not able to do such things and therefore their only recourse is to do what? Is to ask someone to give something to you. Now, depending on who you are, you actually may have a hard time doing that. Have a hard time asking somebody to give you something because maybe it's a blow to your ego. Maybe it's a blow to yourself of self-dependence. And if you ask someone to give you something, then uh, you realize, well, gee, that really puts me in a position of need and dependence. And you know what? My pride and my ego just doesn't want to go there. That's some of us uh, in the world. But you know, there are other people in this world who actually have no problem asking for things, right? Uh, you may ask, your problem maybe you just ask things from people way too often. Can you give me a ride? Can you take me out for some food? Can you do me a favor? Can you give me a minute of your time, which actually turns into 30 minutes? And perhaps the problem with you is that when you ask for things, you place these expectations on others and you say, they should give me what I am asking for. They should give me what I want. You know, I watched a documentary uh, this past week, and someone commented I watch a lot of documentaries. I guess I do. Uh, I watched a documentary this week on this football player named Junior Seau. Uh, some of you may not know who he was, but if you follow football, he was like the superstar football player, and his life eventually ended in tragedy. Uh, he ended up uh, killing himself. And uh, afterwards, it was determined that he had CTE, and CTE is basically this brain disease that's caused by repeated trauma to the head. And uh, it's a big point of, I guess, controversy in the NFL. But, you know, my point isn't actually about uh, his death or the way he died, but my point is actually more about his life and the way that he lived. As I was watching this documentary, one of the sadder parts of this documentary is this. You know, he came from a very poor community and a very poor family. And because of that, oftentimes when you find yourself in a position of wealth and affluence, everybody in the community starts to expect you to support them, right? whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's people you grew up with. And, you know, at first, when he started coming into a lot of this money, he was very happy to help people, and, you know, he supported people, and he gave people money that they needed. But over time, what ended up happening is he just started to feel used. He started to feel used. There was never a sense of any kind of appreciation or gratitude from the people that he was uh, helping, but it was all expectation, and that expectation sucked the life out of him, took the joy out of him helping other people. 
and uh, you make millions of dollars, and I grow up with you, so if I ask you for something, you should give it to me. That was kind of the attitude people around him had. Now, there's a problem with that kind of relationship uh, where if you just expect people to give you something just because you asked for it, then that creates an unhealthy relationship as well, right? This is a very simple petition. Give us today our daily bread. When we ask God to give us this day our daily bread, what we want to do is we want to avoid actually both extremes. On the one hand, we have to understand that, yes, we are needy people. We are dependent creatures, which means that we actually have to come to God and ask him to provide for us, to give us things that we need. And sometimes we don't receive because we never ask in prayer. On the other hand, we want to be careful that we don't look at God as some kind of rich relative and we expect him to give us whatever we want. That's not what this petition is teaching us either. Rather, the best way that we want to understand this kind of petition is something that we talked about last week in how this prayer begins. This prayer begins with our Father. We approach God as our Father in heaven, which means we ask because we are his children, because we are dependent upon him. But, you know, like all good parents, we don't always get what we ask for because we don't always know what's good for us. And we don't always know exactly what we need. Oftentimes we think we know what we need, but... In the final analysis, we actually never really know. Uh, my kids think uh, they need to be in charge and uh, they should be able to do whatever they want, that they should be able to climb furniture and uh, jump off furniture, and uh, they should be able to eat candy and sweets and cupcakes all the time. But you know, I know that's absurd because I know the best thing for them is not for them to be in charge. Uh, they would not turn out to be very good people and very nice people. You know, God is the giver of all good gifts, and because of that, ultimately, he is our great provider, but he is also the one who is supremely wise, and he is a loving father, and therefore, he knows what we need. Even in this passage, it says God knows what we need even before we ask it. But sometimes what we need to do is we need to express our dependence and ask him to give us our daily bread uh, in order to show, God, I need you. You are my father, and I am a needy, independent person. Now, uh, we're going to actually go back to this petition at the end of this sermon, but for now, I want to move on. I want to get to the next petition, which says this in verse 12. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us. You know, forgiveness is a, a central, crucial aspect to Jesus' message. You know, Matthew 26, when he refers to the cup of the wine, and he's, you know what he says? He says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many, for what? For the forgiveness of sin. So even as he institutes the Lord's Supper, at least in Matthew's version of the Lord's Supper, forgiveness is something that is emphasized here. It's meant to show us the significance of why Jesus died on the cross in the first place, why his body was broken in the first place. Why? Well, according to Matthew's gospel, for the forgiveness of sins. But what is forgiveness? And how are we supposed to understand forgiveness? And I think the Lord's Prayer gives us a clue as to what forgiveness is because it introduces this idea of a debt, of a debt. Many of you uh, may have some kind of debt. Uh, you may have a school debt. You may have credit card debt. You may have mortgage debt. You may have some, some other kind of debt where you just owe money. 
But I think for a lot of people, uh, you owe money to some kind of faceless institution, and if you owe money to a faceless institution, it's a little bit less personal, right? But suppose you owe a debt to a person, to a friend, maybe to a family member. You do know it could change the dynamics of that relationship, right? Uh, my dad would always say to me, uh, he would give me this word of wisdom, and he says, don't let friends borrow money from you. The best thing to do is just give it to them, right? Just give it to them. Uh, because then you don't have the expect expectation that they're going to pay you back. And when you let people borrow money, it, it does something to the friendship that's not good, that's negative. So don't let people borrow money. Just give it to them and don't expect anything back. I think that's wise advice because, you know, if you have a friend who owes you money, uh, it can make a mess in terms of the dynamic of the relationship, right? If you've been in that situation, you know it can potentially cause a lot of problems in the relationship. I learned this as early on as third grade. What happened to me in third grade? Well, in third grade, I used to collect comic books. And I had this comic book that was worth a lot to me. It was actually worth a lot of money, at least for a third grader in that time. It was worth about $25. A friend of mine saw that comic book and he said, you know, I really want that comic book. Uh, I'll give you $25 for it but I don't have the money yet. I'll get it to you, but I don't have the money yet. And uh, so what I said is, all right, I'll give you the comic book, but you owe me $25, okay? You gotta pay me back. He's like, I'll get it to you, I'll get it to you. Well, next day I said, hey, do you have the money? No, I didn't get it yet. I'll, I'll get it to you next week. Next week I said, hey man, you have the money? No, I don't have it, man. I'll, I'll get it to you next week. I asked him the next week, hey man, uh, it's been two weeks. You have the money? No, no. I, you know, I have a plan. Next month, I'll get it to you. Right? After a while, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, my friend is not going to pay me back. So I said, hey, you don't have the money. Give me back the comic book. And you know what he says? I lost it. What? You lost the comic book? Complete lie. He just wanted to keep it. And uh, how did that end? Well, I called him a liar and I called him a thief. And uh, we stopped being friends. Right? Third grade. I learned that lesson. You know, when the Bible talks about the effect of sin, uh, it talks about it like a debt. You see, when we sin against God or against another person, uh, it says a debt is essentially created, and that debt has to be paid in order for that relationship to be restored, in order for that relationship to be reconciled. So, for example, if your friend lies to you and says, uh, you know what, I can't help you move this weekend uh, because I, I, I just have to go out of town. I have this work trip, and I got to go out of town. And then you find out that that friend lied to you because another friend, out, friend went out to dinner with that same friend, and you said, what? You went out with him? You went out with her? I thought they were out of town. And a debt is created, right? You feel hurt. You feel betrayed. You confront your friend, and you say, hey, you lied to me, right? You said you were going out of town, and you couldn't help me move. You lied to me. And then your friend says, oh, you got me. Yes, I lied to you, and I'm so sorry that I lied. What happens? Now the ball is in your court, right, as a person who's offended. You could tell that friend, hey, you lied to me, and that, that was a breach of trust. Our friendship is over. You could, you know, say some very bad things to that friend. You could be very passive-aggressive and give that friend the silent treatment. Uh, you could do something else in an attempt to say, you owe me something. You need to pay something for that offense that you have caused upon me, maybe in the form of some kind of punishment. All these kind of actions is basically saying this. You created a debt, and you need to pay that debt to me in some form or in some fashion. That's option one. 
Option two is what? You can forgive them. Now, what does it mean to forgive them in that moment? It means then you decide to pay their debt for them. It means whatever pain, whatever offense, whatever embarrassment, whatever distress you felt as a result of that friend's sin against you, you say to that friend, I'll just take it and I'll bear it myself. Your debt is clear, you're free, relationship restored. Now, when you apply that kind of uh, dynamic to this vertical relationship in terms of our relationship with God, guess what? We are always on the side of the debtor because we are always the one who commits a sin against God. But that's the reason why Jesus dies on a cross. He dies on a cross in order to pay our debt. Normally, we should pay that debt in the form of death and judgment, but Jesus himself says, I will bear it. I will pay that debt for you. I will take the pain. I will take the shame. I will take the judgment. I will take the distress that you deserve by dying upon a cross myself. And so you see, forgiveness is extended to us on this cosmic level because Jesus, he says, I will pay this unthinkable price for you so that your debt would be wiped clean, so that your relationship with the Father can now be restored. That is forgiveness. That's the message of the gospel. Now, if that's true, uh, we really do have to reckon with two aspects of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, If this is something that we believe, if you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I believe in this message, I believe my sins have been forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ, there's two things you're going to have to reckon with here. First, you might ask the question, well, if it's a done deal, if I'm forgiven in Christ, why do we have to pray that God would forgive us our debts if it's already accomplished? Why is that in the Lord's Prayer? That's not an easy answer, uh, question to answer, and uh, I had that question myself. I read a few books about it, saw a few commentaries. They all raised this question as well. Uh, but I guess personally, you know, some of the answers were okay, but they weren't great to me. Uh, let me just give you some of the answers. They would say things like, well, the context of this prayer is in view of our relationship with our Father, therefore... Uh, We're not asking for forgiveness as a way to create this status of sonship or this status as children of the Father, but we're asking forgiveness as a way of maturing our relationship as children. And yeah, that might be true. Uh, The author looks at this corporate prayer and says, well, it's not exactly saying, it's not saying forgive me. It's not this personal individualistic kind of prayer. It's saying forgive us our debts. And therefore, what this prayer is, is it's a prayer for the world. And we're asking God to forgive the world and bring reconciliation. That might be true too, but you know, I, I read these explanations and for whatever reason, it just, I don't know, I wasn't convinced. It's not that they're wrong, but I just wasn't convinced. Uh, you know, where I decided to land on this uh, is a little bit simpler, I think. Uh, I think we pray this in order to remember that we're forgiven people. Uh, imagine this. Imagine a situation where someone commits a very egregious sin against another person. Uh, What I think about is this. Imagine a wife decides to cheat on her husband. Imagine the husband does the unthinkable and says, wife, I'm going to forgive you. I forgive you. But you know, in the aftermath, what might happen is this. Maybe the wife is riddled with like constant guilt and shame over what she has done. And for the husband, maybe it was this one-time act of forgiveness. But for the wife, Maybe she struggles with believing it, right? 
Maybe she struggles in the reality of it. And so she continues to maybe live with a sense of guilt and shame as she begins to condemn herself, and that, that plays its out, itself out in many uh, complex ways because she feels like she owes a great debt. Uh, but maybe she remembers that, yeah, my husband did forgive me when she asks her husband to forgive her again and again. Hey, we, you know, I, I messed up. Would you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. I told you I forgive you. The next week, ah, oh, you know, I, I messed up. Would you forgive me? Yeah, I, of course I forgive you. I wonder if maybe the Lord's Prayer includes this as a way, uh, not, not as a way to actually yet forgiven because that's accomplished in, in the cross, right? I wonder if it's a way for us to maybe remember that we have been forgiven. You see, I'm sure we all go through our own moments where we forget the radical love and beauty expressed in forgiveness. And in the gospel, God is the one who plays the role of the husband, and we always play the role of the adulterous wife. That's, that's a biblical analogy. That's a biblical picture. And perhaps this petition, forgive us our debts, is a way to remember your debts have been forgiven, that your husband has forgiven you for your spiritual adultery. This relates to the second aspect that we have to reckon with. And uh, this is not easy as well, but Jesus gives an extended commentary uh, about forgiveness. And he says, the Father will not forgive us if we don't forgive others. Uh, What does that mean? Is it saying that God's forgiveness is contingent upon whether or not we forgive others uh, as if we have to earn uh, salvation or earn acceptance? Uh, Not exactly. But at the same time, it is saying this. Forgiving others is very intimately tied to receiving God's forgiveness. There's a very intimate correlation there. Now notice, there's an assumption here in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And the assumption is this, that we are forgiving our debtors, even as God forgives us our debts. The reason it assumes that is because as recipients of God's forgiveness through the death of Jesus, the response has to be to forgive others. It has to be that. To put it in financial terms, maybe this will help some of you, it's like having someone say, you owe me a million dollars, but I'm going to forgive you that debt of a million dollars, and then you go to somebody who owes you five dollars, and you say, I can't forgive that five dollars you owe me. Pay me. Pay me. Right? If you've experienced having a debt forgiven of a million dollars, if you really understand the significance of that, that person who owes you five dollars, you should be able to say, yeah, no problem. I've experienced forgiveness. You owe me five dollars. No problem. You're forgiven. You see, if we aren't forgiving others, then it means there's this major spiritual disconnect between God's forgiveness and our experience of it. If we're not experiencing love and grace that expresses itself in gratitude and the forgiveness of others, there's a good chance that we don't know God's forgiveness in the way that we are supposed to know it. You see, Jesus, he tells a parable in Matthew 18 that I think illustrates this dynamic well. And the way this parable starts is Peter begins by asking a question. He says, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Right? My brother who sins against me keeps sinning against me. How many times do I got to forgive this guy? And then Jesus tells a parable about a master who wants to settle accounts with his servants. 
He goes to one servant. This one servant owes him 10,000 talents and he couldn't pay for it. So the master has pity upon him and says, your debt is forgiven. Don't worry about it. You owe me all this money. Don't worry about it. That same servant then goes out to a fellow servant and tries to collect on a significantly smaller debt. And when that servant says, oh, I can't pay you, you know what the servant who's owed money says, does? He chokes him. <laughs> he chokes him. He says, you go to jail until you give me what is owed to me. And he has a servant thrown in prison. The master finds out about this, and he, you know what he says to the servant whose debt he forgave? He says, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you, not you, have had mercy on our fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And so what does he do? In anger, his master delivers him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus summarized it this way. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That is how important and significant forgiveness is. Because if you're unable to forgive others, it means that you don't really understand what God in Christ has done for you. And the point of this parable is this. Do not be like the wicked servant. Do not be unwilling to forgive others when you yourself have received such great forgiveness. Because if you are like this wicked servant, it means you don't really get it. You don't really understand the forgiveness that you have been given from God. You see, when it comes to forgiveness, um, if we know that we should forgive others, I think eventually we have to ask this question, well, how do I do it? It's so hard, especially when the sin of another person is so egregious and hurts you so deeply, you say, man, how do I do it? Uh, if you follow some of the news that took place, I guess in the last year or two, uh, if you followed the, uh, the trial of Larry Nasser, who uh, was the, the doctor who abused uh, a lot of young girls who were uh, on the Olympic gymnastics team, uh, you may have heard of a woman named Rachel Den Hollander, and I spoke about her, I think, once or twice before in a message. Uh, she is a remarkable wo woman. I would even say that she, she's probably a modern-day hero of mine uh, because she is a woman who is so courageous and so persistent and uh, also uh, so reflective of the gospel message. You know, she was one of Nasser's victims, and she was sexually abused by him at the age of 15. And uh, I also believe she was a catalyst for him going to trial and eventually going to prison uh, because she came out and was open and published her story about how she was sexually abused by him in some publication. And that set into course um, his eventual arrest. And now he, you know, he was guilty, so he's in prison now. And uh, she gave this statement to the court and directly to Larry Nasser, And you know, it went viral because it was so uh, remarkable what she was saying. Uh, you know, on the one hand, she was saying uh, this. This is how you've affected me. This is how you've uh, taken my life. To everybody else who covered this up, how much is the life of a young girl worth to you? And she really demonstrated the depth of depravity and uh, the wickedness and the evil of what he did to countless young girls. But then she goes and she uh, presents the gospel, and the way she presents the gospel is not some simple way of like, oh, okay, you know what, what you do is not so bad, and I forgive you. That's not what she says at all. After laying it down, you are an evil man. You are an evil man. And th there needs to be some kind of retribution and some kind of justice. 
But then she goes in the gospel and says this, but you know what? You need God's forgiveness. You need to confront your sin, and if you do that, God is gracious, and he could forgive you. There's grace in the gospel, but there's justice in the gospel. There, evil has to be punished. Equal, evil has to be vanquished. Either you are going to experience it yourself, or if you genuinely come to Jesus Christ in faith, then you'll know a God who's willing to experience that justice and that judgment for you. And, you know, uh, after that, you know, I kind of became a fan of hers. I would read some of her interviews, watch some of the talks that she gave. Uh, I think a couple months ago she gave a talk at Redeemer um, about biblical justice and the gospel and things like that. And I found one of her points actually really interesting. Uh, she was explaining, she said, you know, I forgave uh, Larry Nasser for what he did uh, and not by not, not downplaying the evil of what he did, but she said, I forgave him because I'm a Christian and that's what I'm called to do. You know what helped me actually forgive him or get to a point of forgiving him? You know what book in the Bible, she said, helped her get to that point? The book of Revelation. <laughs> a book that so many Christians, I think, don't read because maybe we're too afraid to read it or approach it or don't understand it. But she found great encouragement in the book of Revelation. Why? In the book of Revelation, Jesus is the righteous judge. And Jesus comes to judge all evil. Every sinful, every unjust act that has taken place in this world, Jesus will come as a judge, and it will have to be reckoned with. Let me just give you a taste of what it says in Revelation. This is from Revelation 19. This is uh, John seeing a vision. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What vivid imagery. And there's many pictures like that in the book of Revelation. What is this passage about? Jesus is coming as the righteous judge, and he is going to make war with all evil. And when she realized that, you know, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to judge all evil. No evil deed will go unpunished. That's when she said, I can forgive Larry Nasser. Do you know why? Because she realized, if I forgive him, it doesn't mean that there will be no justice for myself. But God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, will one day come, and he will execute perfect justice on my behalf. And so you know what? I'm free. I don't have to be the judge. I'm free to forgive this guy and move forward with my life and not be enslaved to the sin that he committed against me. Quite honestly, I don't know how many believers, I would hope many believers could do that, but quite honestly, I don't know how many believers would be able to forgive an evil guy like that. If I was a parent, I have two daughters myself, if I was a parent, quite honestly, I'm not sure if I can forgive somebody for doing something like that. But you know, she's walking the walk of the message that she believes in. 
that she has been forgiven greatly, and therefore she is called to, I guess, represent the gospel in the way that she forgives others. And she can do that, well, for many reasons. She's receiving experience, grace herself, and love herself. But she can also do that because she knows Jesus will come as a judge and judge all evil. But here's what's interesting about this. You know, right before the passage I just read in Revelation 19, there is a meal that takes place, and this meal is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And what this meal represents, it's a messianic banquet uh, that many of Jesus' parables, uh, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, point to, that many prophecies in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, point to. It is this messianic banquet where uh, those who have put their faith in Christ will be invited to come and to feast. Now, we started this sermon by looking at this petition that says, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, I want to end and go back to that petition here because I do think that there is another level of meaning to this petition. Uh, this might get a little bit technical, so forgive me if it does, but I think it's an important point. Uh, the Greek in that petition, uh, it's not very straightforward, and this petition in particular is different from the other kinds of petitions in, in terms of the structure, the Greek grammar and the syntax. Uh, and so immediately, I guess if you're reading it in Greek, you're saying there's something that stands out ab about this petition. What is it? You know, if you look in your Bibles, if you have, a, I guess, the English tr uh, standard version of a Bible translation, and you look at this verse, there's a footnote next to it. And what that footnote says is there's an alternative way to translate this petition. We could translate this petition, give us this day our bread for tomorrow. Not daily bread, but our bread for tomorrow. Now, ever since the time of the Reformation, most people interpreted this petition to refer to physical bread, and therefore, uh, translations have reflected that. But you know, before the Reformation, uh, people actually translated this petition a little bit differently. So, for example, in the fourth century, you have this guy named Jerome, and he translates this petition as the bread for tomorrow. Now, if that indeed is the right way to translate this, what in the world could that petition mean? Give us this day our bread for tomorrow. Well, in the Old and New Testaments, you have this banquet imagery, and what that's symbolic of is the coming and the blessings of the kingdom of God. And I think this is probably a prayer for the blessings of the kingdom to come today. It's a prayer that Jesus would reign and rule from his throne today. It's a prayer that reminds us that Jesus often ate with the quote-unquote wrong people that he ate with sinners, not the righteous, that he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes, that he ate with the poor. Taking part in this banquet is not something that you and I can earn, as if it's an invitation that is based upon uh, our status or how much we make or our achievements, as if it is based on some kind of outward piety or a certain amount of good deeds that we may perform. But no, rather, this invitation is something that has to be given to us freely, by grace, and you see, when we pray, give us, give us, it tells us this, we are the dependent one, and we need God to provide for us. You see, God offers us an invitation through this message of the gospel for the broken, for the needy, for the poor in spirit, for sinners. And if you receive this invitation into your heart, what that means is this, you invite the blessings of the kingdom that is to come into your life today under the very reign and rule of Jesus Christ. 
And when you experience that kind of messianic banquet in the bread for tomorrow, you know what you're able to do? Forgive. You're able to do the next petition. You're able to forgive the debt of others as God has forgiven you. You see, this is an incredibly powerful prayer because as we said last week, it is a kingdom prayer. It is a kingdom prayer. And perhaps some of us have not fully submitted to the rule and the will of our Heavenly Father because maybe we still think that our lives are still best in our hands, in our will, under our rule, building up our own kingdom. But if so, you actually are just like a self-righteous Pharisee, the very people that Jesus condemned in his day and rejected in the Gospels. You see, God is calling people who have large debts to know the one who paid those debts on the cross so that we might experience forgiveness of our sins and blessings of the kingdom. That's what we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer. Give us the bread of tomorrow. Give us the blessings of the kingdom. Give us Jesus himself. And may that fill us with strength, power, and blessing. Friends, let's come to him looking to receive Looking to receive. You know, I say, uh, I say this now and, uh, now and again, but, you know, the Christian faith is actually about receiving. Uh, we, we make it out to be like it's all about uh, giving to God as if we have something to give to God. But I think at the core, it's about receiving. Receiving grace and then responding to that grace. Receiving forgiveness and then responding to that forgiveness. Receiving love and then responding to that love. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has answered this prayer, give us this day, the bread of tomorrow. He has forgiven us debts that are so deep that we may not even be able to recount them all. And with that, he gives us an invitation. He says, come, come feast with me. Come partake in this heavenly banquet. Let's pray together.